So let me read from Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who, was feast, who, had, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would, sit, would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from, from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, you've heard me probably mention before, one of my favorite books, not because it's deep theology, because it's really not, but because I just love the book, is A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' classic. And in it, there's this scene uh, in the book it's in the movies usually too, where uh, the first ghost or spirit comes to, to Scrooge and he's about to take him out on his journey and he has to go out a window, remember? And um, just before he goes out, he looks out the window and he sees all these spirits outside. And this is what Dickens describes it as. Many of these spirits had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. And that scene is heartbreaking because you're seeing in it, uh, again, fictional, but you're seeing the torment that happens when you realize the truth too late when you realize too late that this is what life was meant for. This is where I was supposed to be. This is the way I was supposed to be living. And then you see, if you've seen the movies, the old Alistair Sim version, and that's my favorite version. Um, they've got these old actors, and it's like he's grabbing handfuls of coins and he's throwing them, but they're not going anywhere. And he's trying to shower this poor woman who needs something, but he can't. And the anguish that he feels is he can never do what he knows he should have done in life. And that sense of being just a little too late, I find, is what overcomes me every time I read this parable. Listen, I've studied it. I know the Greek. I know all the fancy things that people say about it, and there's much there. But what always hits me is I feel sad. Sad that this rich man, even though he gets precisely what he asked for, and I'll show, we'll show that, I still feel terribly sad for him because it's too late. And how many people too late understand the truth? And now this is, you know, what he realizes is actually that, well, if you're a Canadian music fan, the Tragically Hip say it very well. It's no dress rehearsal. This is life. 
You have one shot. And once those gates close, this chasm is fixed. It's over. So there is a sense of warning here. Now, if I'm a skeptic, which I was, like as you all know, once upon a time, I would say, but listen, isn't a warning just a very polite theological way of saying it's a threat? Isn't God just trying to badger us into the kingdom with this nonsense about, well, you'll be burning forever if you don't accept? Well, I would have a problem with the logic there. If a doctor comes to me and she says, Carl, if you continue to eat fried foods and butter, you're going to have a heart attack. You know what I wouldn't say? Is that a threat? You threatening me? I wouldn't say that. What I would say is, she, she's probably right. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be doing that. So you can see it as a threat if you'd like, but you'd be wrong to do so. You'd be taking liberty with a text it doesn't give you. This is not a threat, but it is a warning and a stern one. So if it is a warning, what is it trying to warn us about? And I think what we'll see is this, and there's so many ways we could go, but we're going to look at it this way so that you're not here for three hours with me. That this is a, a warning for us to, before it's too late to realize what this rich man realized, which is that there is a judge, that we don't want this judge, and how to be right with the judge. Okay? So at first, there is a judge. Let me start with another book. Arthur Miller, if anybody knows Arthur Miller, he wrote Death of a Salesman and The Crucible, and he was married to Marilyn Monroe in the 50s, very well known, and he wrote his other wonderful play called After the Fall. And it was very autobiographical, specifically a lot of, very personal actually, about his own life, and his, specifically his relationship with Marilyn Monroe, the movie star. I'm assuming everybody knows who Marilyn Monroe is. And um, this is one of the things he, he says in this play. For many years, I looked at life as a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are, or smart, and then what a good lover, and then what a good father. Finally, you, how, how wise, or how powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up, looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. And what Miller is saying about personal, this is very personal of his own life, is this. He lived his life on the assumption that he was, there was a purpose to life. And he says, I, was, I thought I was always building to something. I'm going from career to career to play to play to achievement to achievement. And at some point, he said, at some point, someone's going to render a verdict. At some point, I'm going to find out, well done, or you failed. He said, but, but a verdict anyway. I expected I was doing all this for a reason. But one day he looks up, he says, and he realizes there's nobody on the bench. And if there is no judge, he says, then life is a pointless litigation before an empty bench. And what he means is, if there's no judge, you continue to try to prove yourself, right? You try to be a good dad. You try to be a good Christian. You try to be a good mom, a good worker, whatever it is. And he's saying, but if there's no judge, you're just building a case against who? Nobody's there. In the spirit of the Olympics, it's like you practice your whole life diving, and then you dive and you give your best dive in the world at the Olympics. But when you come out of the water, there's nobody there to watch it. And really, all you are is a person jumping in water. You're not an athlete. There's no meaning. And this is what Arthur Miller, one of the greatest and most prolific playwrights of our age, has to say. And if this is the case, then we have a problem. Because we don't believe it. We don't believe Arthur Miller. He's wrong. 
He may say this, and this may be what many people say they feel. Increasingly, we're seeing more and more atheists in Canada and so on. But I'm sorry, I'm going to be this bold. You're lying. You're not an atheist. You think you are, but you keep trying to prove yourself. You keep saying, there's no God, there's no judge, but it's very important that I be a good dad. It's very important that I stomp out Christianity. Very important that I save the environment. Why is it important? There's no judge. No one's going to remember. You're not saving anything. It's all going to die when the sun blows up anyway. Don't bother. So, and not just these philosophical arguments. Let's look at human experience and shows that we actually want a judge. So, have you noticed the world seems angrier lately? Maybe it's just me. But there's actual studies that show prior to COVID, I remember I was reading one study this week that said that in 2018, so prior to COVID, 42% of Americans, not Canadians, but Americans said that they had been violently angry the day before. 42%. And not just that. that remember now we have COVID. And what are all of our disagreements? You see they're everywhere. I don't have to rehash them, but they're about racism and about indigenous rights and about masks and vaccines. And what are we crying out for? Justice. Everybody thinks they want justice. I want rights. Let's do right by whoever, whoever, myself or the other group. We're crying out for justice, and yet we claim there's no judge. So, I'm sorry, Arthur Miller. You were wrong. You say there's no judge, but human experience says otherwise. Our anger is a sense that we all believe there is a judge, and that I know who he is, or you know who he is. And if we go even more subtle... I was reading as well about this, that um, since 2013, did you know self-help books in Canada have increased in sales by 11% every year? It's a good return for the last decade or so. And when a woman who works as a uh, book analyst, a book market analyst, was asked why is this the case that self-help books are so popular, here's what she said. Consumers have placed an increasing focus on mindfulness and minimalism in recent years. People are yearning for meaning, peace, and calm in today's somewhat chaotic culture. And they're looking for ways to slow down and unplug, which is part of the reason books that inspire people to do just that are doing well. And so, we can say 20% of Canadians claim that there's no God, but I'll tell you what, 100% of atheists, 100% of Canadians are living as if there is one, as if there is a purpose, as if they are going to be judged for giving to the poor and saving the environment. So, I kindly and respectfully disagree with Arthur Miller. But now we have, let's turn to the parable now. The reason this parable is so powerful is that you all and we all want a judge. We want somebody to say I was right or wrong. And for, we, don't, that's the, we don't want that. We want somebody to say we were right. We don't want the judge to tell us we were wrong. But we want it. And the parable then shows up and look at the wording that is used. And here's why you can't let God off the hook. I've often seen Christians say things like, Oh, listen, God doesn't send anybody to hell. They choose it. Let's be a little careful here with our language. There's some mystery here. Yes, there's no doubt, and you're going to see in a minute, that this parable shows us that we choose our, our destiny. But make no mistake, this chasm has been fixed. It doesn't get fixed by accident. Somebody fixes it in place. In order that you can't pass, God has created this, this place. He has fixed the place. He intends to be a judge. He, and like it or not, I know we, that's difficult for Christians. You want to think God would never do this. I disagree, and I'm going to show you again, hopefully, why. But here's the great challenge. 
What are we all asking for as people? You want a life with meaning so that your actions have a purpose, right? You, you don't want your actions, you don't want to raise your kids for no reason. You want to raise them well so that they, they do something. You want your actions to have consequences so that they're more meaningful. You want good to be rewarded and bad to be punished. You even want someone to look into your heart. You know, I often hear as a pastor, as people say, I know I committed adultery, but if God knows, God knows my heart. I know I lose my temper with my kids, but God knows I love them. Don't you see what you're doing? You want someone to go deep into you. You want someone to see beyond your actions and into your heart. You've wanted it, and the Bible says you have it. Now we have to face the reality that you have exactly what you want. And that is a lot less palatable for humans. You want a judge, but now, and you have one that isn't flimsy. He is rigid. He is just, as justice only can be. So here, let me stop before I move to the next point and answer a skeptical question that I would have here if I was a good skeptic, which, again, I have been. So how is this God good? How is this God of yours good? How can the Christians claim that this God is benevolent and wonderful and loving, and yet he, for an instant, maybe a moment, maybe an 80-year or 100-year life, would take 100 years of sin and give you an eternity of hell? It doesn't seem right. It's unjust, isn't it? Let me respond with three, three things. That much could be said, but let's say three things. First, let me start with logic. When I, I remember being at um, a few years ago, I don't remember what year, but a Superman movie had just come out. It was about a decade, maybe more ago. And um, I'm sitting in the theater watching, and everybody knows Superman is the man of steel, right? And there's a scene where every movie, people don't understand, you can't shoot Superman, but they try. And they're shooting at Superman. And at one point, a bullet goes to his eye. But because he's Superman, when it hits his eye, it crushes and falls to the ground. And the man sitting next to me, who I don't know, just went, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I look at him, I'm like, what's he doing? Um, now, why is it comical that he would say that? This is why. Because when you go into a story, like it or not, you buy the ticket, you, buy the, you open the book, you assume that you are going to accept the internal logic of that story. That when you read Lord of the Rings, you have now accepted that there's such a world that you're into that has goblins and magic. Right? You just assume that's true. You may not believe it, it happens in our world, but when you enter into that story, you accept the internal logic of the story. Now, skeptic or not, regardless of what you think of reality, when you read the Bible, if the internal logic of the Bible says that there is a God that is this holy, this perfect, this worthy of our honor, then you, like it or not, skeptic, logic says you must accept that if he exists, he has the right to do with us whatever he wants. If, if the logic of the Bible is true, he may do as he pleases. So there's a logical issue there. But let me turn now to more one that hits home. You are hypocritical. All of us are. We say things like, oh my goodness, how could a hundred-year life be punished for eternity? Let me ask this question. How is it that when a, when a politician has, we find out that when he was 16 years old, he said something insensitive, we now think because he was an idiot teenager, which most of us probably were, um, now that politician should lose their life, their job, their reputation, their children should be knowing that their dad or their mother is, ho is horrible. See, we don't have a problem executing judgment on somebody and, ru and ruining a life for one moment, do we? And go, let's go even more sensitive. A man or a woman gets into a drunk driving accident. They've been drinking, and they get into an accident and kill somebody. 
we believe that that punishment should be, let's say, life in prison, because it was intentional. They knew what they were doing. And we cry out for murder, right? We cry out for high justice. And the reason we do it is because we say it may have been only a momentary act, but it cost a life. And because it cost a life, the punishment should be severe. Now, and I agree, I think we can agree with that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Now, let's use a, maybe, I don't know if I've said this to you guys before, but let me use a more practical, even more practical example. If I walked into the golf course yesterday and smacked the greenskeeper and said, the greens are no good, and I smacked them in the face, I would be kicked off the course. Maybe they'd call the police, but i drive pretty quick. I'd probably be out before they got to me. I'd tell them my name was Paul. Um, <laughs> Paul, Paul Zawalski, I work at a Redeemer. Uh, but no, but you see, I would get, there'd be some sort of punishment, but it would be minor. Now, if I walked out on the street and punched or slapped a police officer, what would happen? Well, punishment would be a little higher. I'd not only probably take a beating, but then I'd be arrested and be charged. Now, what if I went to Jordan and punched the king of Jordan? What would happen to me? Well, I think I'd probably be killed, right? Now, in our logic and law in the world, we believe that the problem is not so much the crime, but the one offended. That's the difference. You offend a peon like me, you're going to have a minor slap on the wrist. You offend a cop, more. You offend the leader of a nation, you're going to jail for treason, something. So even we understand that it's the dignity of the one offended more than the, the, the crime committed by the offender. That's what dictates punishment. So if that's the case, what is the right punishment for somebody who offends an infinitely honorable and worthy God? Answer. I don't know the answer, but I think I know. And then let me go even more simple and more unfortunate, maybe. You know what you're seeing here? And a pastor reminded me of this this week. You have chosen your identity in this world. The rich man has too, and you're going to see it's unchanging in hell. He has chosen his identity. You know what hell looks like here, or Hades, the Greek term here? It looks like God saying, I'm going to honor your freedom so much that I'm going to let you have the identity you've chosen forever. You can have it. You want it. You've chosen it freely of your own will. Have it. So when people say hell is unjust, I can understand that, that. I can really understand it. It does seem that way. But when you think about it, you begin to realize it's only unjust because you don't want justice at first. You do and you don't. See, you're in this conundrum. I want justice, but I can't stand justice. It's too hard for me to swallow. So that's the first thing. There is a judge. The next one won't be as long. Don't worry. So he realizes too late that there is a judge, that there really was. All the stories were true. Right? And that's why we do what we do. That's why we tell people about the gospel. Because we want them to know this is not accidental. It's not, we're not just making this up. If I was going to make it up, I'd make up a very different story. So the second thing is, we see he doesn't want the judge. Now this is, um, and he's on the wrong side of this judge as well. Consider the two things this man asks when he's in, in torment. The first thing is, he wants a little bit of water to cool his tongue. Do you notice this man is suffering in hell? And he doesn't ask to be let out of hell. I would, in my logic, I would think that's the first thing I would ask for. Let me out. But he doesn't. He asks for relief from the circumstances that are in hell. And that is a strange one, isn't it? You ever think of that? Why would he do that? And I think this is why. 
even, I remember having this debate with a great theological thinker out in Calgary who I knew. I won't say his name, but if he's listening, he'll know. We had this great debate because he was under the impression, he said, no, Carl, people never choose hell. They don't want to be in hell. And I can appreciate nobody grows up and says, that's my aspiration. Uh, I, that I agree with. But do you see what's happening? Even here, he isn't crying out for a king. He's crying out for relief. It's like the adulterer who says, I don't repent of what I did. I just wish I didn't have the circumstances. I wish my family wasn't broken up. I wish my, my, my kids didn't despise me. But they don't repent of the fact that they broke a covenant and dishonored somebody. So even here, we are seeing that this person, this rich man who were never told his name, he had comfort in life. And what does he want in hell? Comfort. He's unchanged in hell. Nothing has changed. It's not like you go there for reform and you come out better. You don't. The tragedy of hell seems to me to be the fact that you actually go and you never really want to leave. Not that you want to be there, but you don't, you're not ready to accept the king. You're still not ready to accept that you deserve to be there. So that's an interesting point. But the second thing he asks I find even more intriguing. He turns to Abraham and says, well, then send Lazarus. This is interesting. A man who had bossed people around wants to now boss around Abraham and, and, and Lazarus. Send him to go tell my brothers before they get here as well. And what he thinks is this. He's under the impression if they just had more evidence, they'd believe. Send them a, a resurrected Lazarus. Then they'd believe. They'd say, oh my goodness, it's a dead guy alive. Surely God is real. And even in life, see, in life, this rich man thought, I, all the evidence points to me having a good point. God likes me, obviously, because I'm doing well. Evidence says I am favored. And here, he still thinks that evidence is what we're lacking. And Abraham is the rude awakening of saying, you neither deserve nor need more evidence. The word of God is all you actually need. And that is um, difficult, isn't it? It's a hard statement, but we're, I hear this a lot. People say things like, well, if God would just come back, you know, if he'd come back and show up and, you know, beam, you know, come from the sky on a, on a cloud, and I'd believe him. Well, he's done that. It didn't work for you. And then there's a very famous atheist guy named Bertrand Russell. Well, he's dead now, but he was. And he was once asked in a public talk, what would happen if you died and you woke up and you saw God? What would you say to him? His response was, and I quote, let me find it before I quote it. He'd say, I'm terribly sorry, but you didn't give us enough evidence. That's what he, would say, he says he would say to God. And yet, the Bible says, you know what the problem is, Mr. Russell, and everybody else who would agree with this statement? The problem is that you didn't have enough evidence. Just grow up and admit that you don't want this king. You don't want this judge. And there's one, at least that I know of, a philosopher who's a staunch atheist named Thomas Nagel. And he, I give him credit, because at least he was honest. Here's what he had to say. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a uni the universe, or sorry, I don't want the universe to be like that. Think what you will of him, but at least he's being honest. He's saying, the simple fact is, I don't want this king. And this is what hell and this parable shows us. It's almost like it peels back our excuses and says, stop pretending like you needed more evidence. You didn't need more evidence. The problem is you didn't want to believe. And that is hard. That is difficult to swallow. And so, 
I'm jumped way ahead of my notes again. See what happens when you don't follow your notes. So this rich man still feels, even in hell, that he needed more evidence. That's what I needed, and that's what my friends, my brothers need. Now, if that's the case, he realizes too late that there is a judge, too late that um, he doesn't want this judge. Then how does he poss- how do you possibly get right? How do you possibly es- escape justice in this world when it's obvious that we all deserve justice? And the answer comes in Lazarus. Lazarus is described intentionally, he's contrasted with the rich man. He's poor, he has sores all over his body, he's hungry, he has no friends. But look at what this parable says. Did you notice there's a difference in how they die? They both die, but it says Lazarus was carried by the angels to, to Abraham's side, and the rich man was buried. Jesus is intentionally, when he says he's carried, who else was carried to God? If you're a Christian, you know some of these answers. You know, Enoch, right? Remember Enoch? Went. Elijah went. The Jews think in their tradition that Moses was also carried to the side. Jesus is intentionally connecting Lazarus to this incredible line of virtuous people, and especially loved by God sort of people. Now, the question that I come away with is asking, if one man is on this side of the chasm and the other one's there, I'm trying to figure out how did that, I see how the other guy got to the one, Hades. How did he get there? By what means does Lazarus get there? Because Lazarus says not one word in this entire parable. And he's also the only named character in any of the parables of Jesus. Nobody else is ever given a name. They're referred to as being a farmer or whatever. But nobody else is named. And the name Lazarus is the word Eliezer, which means helped of God. God helps him. Now, consider this. In life, the rich man was helping himself. He was helping himself entirely, and he thought that was evidence enough, and that was good enough. It's that old adage, God helps those who help themselves. He believed it. And as a result, we see what happens. But Lazarus says not a word. There's no voice. There's no hope for him. There's nothing. The only thing he has to fall back on is not a resume, but he has to trust that God will help him. And God, it seems, he helps the ones who realize that they have no hope except God. So ironically, the only way to escape this judge and escape justice is to, is to confess that you're on the wrong side of justice. And that is difficult. People don't like being told they're wrong. And if you don't believe it, wait till you come and see me in my office. And I say something to you, and you're going to think right away, this guy's theology is crazy because he says I'm wrong. And I, and I say that to people sometimes. I understand it. But this is the only way to get on the right side, and I think that's why he's the only person named for us, Lazarus. The Lord helps. When you see that you have no help in this world except God, then he comes and he can help you. Because otherwise, you're always going to think it's you. You know, I often hear when people say, and I'm not knocking this, but I'm a little worried when I hear it. When people say, I can't wait to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen, we all, I mean, we're told to want that. However, I'm a little worried that what I'm thinking is he's going to say, well done, your preaching was excellent. That's not... That's not what he means. If, if you're using that language only to cover the fact that you're trying to hope he's going to reward you for your resume, I caution you. The only servant who's told well done is Christ. And when we say, you know, when somebody says, what makes you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? Some people's logical response is, well, I go to church. I believe in the Bible. You know what your response should be? What makes me a Christian? Christ alone. That's all. Nothing else makes me a Christian. I have no, I have no credentials. 
There's no card-carrying checklist. And seems to us in this passage that Lazarus understood this. Like it or not, he's silent. He doesn't even answer in in heaven. He lets Abraham speak for him. God speaks for him. He doesn't have to be speaking for himself. And that sort of humility is something I think we could learn. I could learn from, that's for sure. So the parable may or may not be a true story, but the warning is clear. We are called to see that we are on the wrong side of justice. And the only way to get on the right side is to trust the one who came and was buried. You notice it never says Jesus was carried to the side of his father. He was buried, it says. He was buried like the unrighteous rich man so that you could be carried to the side of God because of him. That's the gospel. We're all on the wrong side. Let's pray.